Indeed, we are completely surrendered to him and want to see his will done. As we come to God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that we do not come clothed in our own righteousness, for that is filthy rags, but we come in his righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives. You have given us your word that we might hear from you, and I pray now as we open that word that you would please speak to us, that we might learn how to follow you and do your will. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, I would figure that most, if not all of us here this morning or listening to me this morning know of what Jesus did. We know of what he has done. We know that he was born in a manger. We know that he walked upon this earth. And as he did so, he taught and he did miracles We know that he went to the cross and he died there outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We know he was buried in a tomb and three days later that stone was rolled away by angels and Jesus rose from the grave. We know he ascended to heaven and that one day he will return to rescue his own and to set up his kingdom here on earth. We know the basic facts of Jesus. But do we often think about the heart of Jesus? What motivates him? What moves him to do what he did? And what does he think about people like us? What does he think of sinners like us? Failing you see, to think about the heart of Christ can cause us needlessly to feel distance from him. We impose feelings into the heart of Christ that the Bible doesn't reveal are are actually there. And so we need to look to the divinely inspired word of God to know who Jesus is and how he feels for sinners like you and I. In our text this morning, is going to help us to know this heart of Christ. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. If you don't have your own copy, there should be a copy in the pew rack directly in front of you. Here in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has launched into his public ministry in full swing, and it is creating not only disciples, those who are looking to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and, and give everything to him, And those who are opposing Jesus, who don't want to hear what he has to say and want him shut down. And so this this growing theme of discipleship and opposition are continuing to be seen throughout this chapter and the next. And here in our text this morning, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. We're going to see these themes of discipleship and opposition continue. Follow along as I read in Luke beginning in verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This morning in this text, I want to help you to see three revelations of the heart of Christ. Three revelations of the heart of Christ that we can see here in this text. We need to look at these revelations of Christ's heart so that we would run to him. So we'd go to Jesus and find healing for our souls. The first revelation, the heart of Christ, we see in this text is found in verses 27 and 28, and it's this. Jesus moves toward sinners. Jesus moves toward sinners. Not away from them, but toward them. Look at verse 27. It says, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Our text begins with Jesus walking out. Here in the flow of the text, it seems to be out of the house that uh, he healed the paralytic in that we saw last week in the passage just before this. In the Gospel of Mark, it seems that Jesus is walking out of a city, walking out of Capernaum. I think the text here, walking out or went out, could imply both or at least include both. I think that uh, comparing with Mark, we can see that this account takes place while he's walking out of Capernaum, which is beside the Sea of Galilee on the north shore. And as he exits the city of Capernaum, there's a hustle and bustle to the day. The fishermen have just finished their night of fishing and they're cleaning their nets along the shore. The Workers are heading out to the fields to begin to work there for the day. The, the women are attending to the tasks associated with keeping house. The city is awakened and there's that hustle and bustle of the town. And Jesus is walking with his disciples, it says, uh, that we know from this text that he's got his disciples with him. Earlier in this chapter, we saw him call uh, Peter and James and John, assuming that uh, Peter's brother also with, was with him, Andrew, we know there are at least four disciples that are following Jesus at this point. But no doubt there were many others. Those who simply wanted to follow Jesus, that had heard his words and, and were, were fascinated and want to hear more from him. And so they're tagging along with Jesus. As they're leaving Capernaum, it says that Jesus saw a tax collector sitting in his tax booth. Now, we don't have this kind of uh, reality today, a tax booth just outside of town, so we don't, aren't quite familiar with what uh, may have been, was very familiar in the first century. You see, Capernaum was on a major trade route between empires. And I have a, a map here uh, to show you uh, that, the, that Capernaum uh, was, was in the midst of a trade route between Egypt, the south of Uh, of Israel and Mesopotamia and the other great empires that were to the north and to the east. And so the Sea of Galilee uh, and Capernaum that was right on that sea sat along this major route. 
And so you had merchants and you had all sorts of trade that was going between these major empires and the local officials there in Capernaum wanted to tap into that major uh, trade route by taxing all that went through their midst. And so they set up, there no doubt was a major tr uh, tax operation that took place there in Capernaum. It was natural for them to want to uh, gain from this international trade. Now, taxing in the Roman Empire took place as uh, Rome gave taxing rights to certain regions to the highest bidder. They basically said, this, this region, this region, this region is all up for, for bidding, and people would, would put down money to try to uh, gain access to tax in that area. And so there would be a, what was called a great tax collector or a chief tax collector who would be over that region. We read in, in Luke chapter 19 a man named Zacchaeus who was identified as a chief tax collector. He was one of those who was responsible for a region. He would then employ those who would be on the ground seeking to gain taxes, uh, knocking on doors and sitting at these tax booths to gain the income. I believe that Levi, the one we meet in our text here today, is one of those lower, uh, lesser tax collectors who was simply sitting at the booth working for a, a greater chief tax collector. As I said, this tax collector here in our text is identified as Levi. Levi, maybe not a name you're too familiar with, but as we compare this account with other gospel accounts, particularly the one in Matthew, we see that this is the very man who is also known as Matthew the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, the apostle of Jesus who will be included in the list of the apostles in the next chapter. And so we can see that this man had two names. He's known as Levi and he's known as Matthew. And that might confuse us today. We know of first names and middle names, but we don't know of two names that someone might be known by necessarily. But biblically, we see that happen quite often that sometimes they might have two names. You might remember that Moses' father-in-law is known as Reuel or also as Jethro. We see that given in two different places. It's also common in the scriptures that after someone is converted, their name changes. Think of Saul who became Paul or Simon who became known as Peter. And so therefore, scholars believe that Levi was this man's name before he was saved and Matthew was his name after his conversion. We can't be certain of that, but that seems best by the evidence. Now, it says that Jesus saw Levi. It says that as he went out, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. Now, that word saw might be one that we just simply gloss over, but it's important to realize that the word that Luke uses here is a more intense Greek word than the other gospel writers use. It's a word that means to intently look at, to study. And I, I have to think that Jesus, as he's walking out, and he, he pauses and he, and he looks at Levi for, for a moment. For he, he, he holds his gaze upon this man. And it just might be that Jesus has seen this man before. Because remember, Levi lives and works around Capernaum. And Jesus has been doing many of his great signs and wonders there around this little town. He had the great miraculous catch of fish out upon the waters just outside of Capernaum, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 5. He's 
taught and healed. He healed a, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum. I mean, the talk of the town is about Jesus. And people have been flooding to Capernaum in order to see this man. So no doubt that Levi, who's been sitting at a tax booth at the road watching people come into this town, has heard and seen the great hubbub that is around Capernaum about Jesus. He very well may, when he got off work, would go and linger at the outside of the crowd just to listen to what this man has to say. Who is this teacher who seems to be teaching with great authority and healing people? You have to wonder whether he was, he was curious and that Jesus, in his perceptive insight, could have, could have seen all those who were in the crowds. And so when he walks out of Capernaum and sees this man sitting at a, at a tax booth, he knows this man has been, has been lingering. This man has been coming to hear my word. I've seen him before. And so upon looking at Levi, studying him intently, he then says two words to him. He says, follow me. Follow me. This command must have taken everyone by surprise. It took Levi by surprise. It took his disciples by surprise. It took the other tax collectors and anyone else who was listening by surprise. They would have been in absolute shock. Because you see, tax collectors were despised by all the Jews, but especially religious leaders, religious teachers. And yet here was a teacher, a rabbi with disciples, talking to a tax collector, and not just talking to him, but calling him to follow him. It was unheard of. Now, tax collectors were hated for several reasons. The first is that they were known for their thievery and extortion. You see, they were required to collect a certain amount of tax for Rome, but they often would up the amount that they were receiving from people in order to line their own pockets. And this was often exorbitant amounts, and so tax collectors were often very rich, having squeezed all that they could out of the people that they extracted the taxes from. And you see, it wasn't just Jews that hated that. It was actually Roman citizens throughout the Roman Empire that loathed tax collectors for that very reason. In fact, we have a quote from a Plutarch who was a first century writer who said this. He says, it's not when they tax obvious imports that we are aggrieved and angry at tax collectors, but when they examine private articles and meddle with bags and baggage, which they have nothing to do with, yet the law permits them to do this, and they suffer if they do not. They're meddling in everything they can to find some reason to tax everything that people had on their persons, and everyone hated them for this. But not only were they hated for their thievery and extortion, but secondly, it's in, particularly in Israel, they were hated because they were agents of Rome. You see, the Jews saw themselves as oppressed under the, the rulership of Rome. And so Rome was the enemy. Rome was the oppressor. And here the, these tax collectors were Jewish people who had turned to the other side. They were now collecting taxes for the enemy. And therefore, tax collectors were viewed as traitors. You're not a true Jew. I can treat you like a Gentile because you don't love our nation. You have abandoned our nation. You now work for the other side. But thirdly, the spiritual reason, the religious reason, is that because they now work for Rome, they were seen as treasonous against God himself. 
they had turned their back on God. And therefore, the, the Pharisees and the scribes considered them completely unclean. They, there was utter abhorrence for these men. And they were avoided often like lepers were. Everything that they had and that they touched was unclean. If they stepped into your house, your house was now unclean. Jews were not allowed to ex- accept their money, even if it was for charity. They were, Jews were allowed to lie to a tax collector guilt-free. They were guilty of no sin if they deceived or lied to a tax collector, as if the religious leaders could decide what was guilt-free and what wasn't. But the tax collectors, get this, were excluded from religious fellowship. They could not go to the synagogue. They were pressed out of religious life, and therefore, in many ways, they had been cut off from God himself. They had no access to the scriptures. They had no access to fellowship. They were on the outside. They were considered sinners beyond redemption. And so with that as background, can you imagine the shock that Levi received when this popular religious teacher asked him to be his disciple? But notice, Levi didn't really have to think about it. Look at verse 28. It says, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. There's no deliberation here. It says he, he left everything and rose and followed Jesus. The quickness of this exchange, how quickly he made this decision, leads me to believe that the Spirit had been working on Levi before this. Again, just surmising what could have been going on in the background. Levi hearing about Jesus, maybe listening to his teaching, and begin to thinking, man, is this, is this man's teaching for me? Could I maybe follow this man? Could maybe what he's saying be true, and could, I, could it be life for me? He wasn't allowed to enter the synagogue, but he could go along the seashore and listen to this teacher who was teaching. And he saw the miracles. He heard the stories. There must have been something that was churning in his soul. I mean, again, think about it. He was, he's a Jewish man. He was brought up like all other Jewish children, all other Jewish boys, taught from a young age by his mother to follow the, the law and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength, the great Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He was taught to know the scriptures, to love God, and to follow them. He would have gone to the synagogue to be taught by the local rabbis until his bar mitzvah around age 12 or 13. I mean, this man knew the word of God. He had been taught it. And yet at some point, for reasons we don't know, he took up the occupation of a tax collector. And when he did, he cut off all ties with his family, with his community, and in practical ways with his God. He was profiting by heathen gold. He was oppressing his countrymen and enriching their enemy. He was a social outcast, only able to interact with the low life of society. But again, he must, uh, at this point, must have had a growing distaste for his situation. He must have been recognizing the emptiness of simply trying to gain more and more money, thinking that that's all life, that there is to life, is just to tax and to tax and to gain riches and gain riches and then to have the bigger house and the, the, the more food and, and, and the more riches. It must have been an emptiness that was developing within his heart that was driving him to know more about this new teacher and this miracle worker. And I don't doubt the lessons he heard as a child were beginning to come back to him. The word of God that he had memorized he had learned was beginning to speak to him in new and fresh ways. 
And so as spiritual fervor was rising in the country, he may have realized what he had lost through his lifestyle change. By choosing to be a tax collector, he had lost something. He, he realized that he was far away from God. And so the spirit uh, working on his heart that when Jesus speaks to him and says, follow me, he's overcome with joy and wonder and shock and gratitude and instantly realizes this is the answer to his prayers. This is what he's been hoping for, that there'd be a way back. There'd be a way to be redeemed, a way for him to know God intimately again. And so he gets up, leaves the booth behind, and follows Jesus wholeheartedly. Matthew doesn't just now have a new social life. He has a new spiritual life. Whereas before he was willing to turn his back on God's nation, God's law, and thus on God himself, he now goes with faith to give his life to the Son of God. And friends, here is what we must see in these two verses. We must see the intentionality of Jesus moving towards Levi. Every other religious leader, every other person who knew the law of God and claimed to represent God, avoided this man at all costs. And yet Jesus doesn't avoid him. He moves towards him. He lingers on him, recognizing him as a soul, recognizing him as someone valuable, made in the image of God and redeemable, and he moves towards him. He takes the initiative. But also notice the significance of who he is choosing to be a part of his team. He's not just saying, hey, Levi, you can come on the outskirts. You can kind of come and hang around me a little bit. I'm okay with that. No, he invites him in to follow him and be an official disciple of this rabbi. And we notice here that Jesus does not choose among the best and the brightest of the nation. He isn't going to the most influential and the most respected in society. Where does he go? He goes towards a man who's considered to be at the bottom, considered to be a cast-off, a worthless man. He went after someone considered to be too sinful, too vile, and too lost. He personally selected a man whom no other teacher would even, religious teacher would even get near. And friends, this is the Jesus that we need to see this morning for you and for I. He moves towards sinners still today. He takes the initiative towards us. I know he moved towards me. Even when he knew the wickedness in my heart, he came to rescue me. And friends, that is the story of every Christian, is it not? That Jesus moved towards us. He came to rescue us. God saves sinners. He calls us to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we then respond to the gospel. We hear the word of God preached. We hear the call to repentance, and we respond to it because the Spirit is working in each one of our hearts. This is what theologians call the effectual call. It's the call of the sinner that affects change, that brings salvation. Like the voice of Jesus on that day, every believer hears God call to him and say, follow me, repent of your sins. Romans 8, verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see that God predestines those who will believe and those whom he's predestined, he's chosen, he calls them. 
this effectual call in such a way that they listen to his voice and respond just like Levi responded. If you are here this morning and you have not ever responded to God's call, you have never submitted your life to Jesus, then this text makes abundantly clear that Jesus does not turn people away because of their history, because of their background. It does not matter what you've done in your life. Jesus moves towards us who are vile, who are wicked. You see, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how much maybe you've mocked him in the past. Jesus will receive you if you return, if you turn to him in faith. It doesn't even matter how recent your sin was. Jesus will receive you today if you repent and believe. Matthew, Levi here, was in the midst of an awful lifestyle when Jesus called him. He hadn't left the tax collector business. He hadn't left all of that behind. He was still in the thick of it, and Jesus reached out to him. And friends, that's what Jesus does to us too. He doesn't wait till we get clean. He doesn't call us to get clean and then come to him. He says, come to me and be cleaned. That is Jesus' heart towards sinners. He moves towards us even in our, all of our, our wickedness. And so I encourage you, if Jesus is calling you today, don't plug your ears. Don't postpone. Don't neglect that call today. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today to respond to the call of Jesus who moves towards us who are sinners. Well, this leads us to the second revelation of Christ's heart that we see in this passage. First is that Jesus moves towards sinners. Secondly, Jesus associates with sinners. Jesus associates with sinners. You see this in verses 29 and 30. Now I'm gonna use the names Levi and Matthew interchangeably. Um, you understand why the text says Levi, Matthew, I think we're all pretty uh, familiar with, so I'll, I'll uh, jump back and forth, but I mean the same, the same guy. Here we see in verse 29, it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi was not ashamed of his new affiliation with Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, he was ecstatic. He was overjoyed. He was so pumped, he was throwing a party. He was, he, was no, he was gonna spare no expense at throwing this party for Jesus. His heart was no doubt overflowing with joy and with gratitude. Unique to Luke here is that he, he says that he made this feast for Jesus, for him. It was, Jesus was, was not just invited to the party, he was the special guest at the party. He was the honored guest. Jesus was now Matthew's top priority. Everything was gonna go towards Jesus. Now, in addition to Jesus and no doubt his disciples, who we see appear uh, later in verse 30, uh, Jesus and his disciples being there, there were others, verse 29 tells us. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. You'll remember that the, in the ancient times, they didn't sit at tables like we do today where we have 
high table, and we have chairs that scoot us up to that table, but they often had tables that were low to the ground or maybe even just ate off the ground. And so reclining was not mean they leaned back in their chairs, but they were actually laying on the ground, probably on an elbow or so as they ate. They were reclining at table together in this feast. So it looks like Matthew went to basically the only people that he knew. Who was in Matthew's social life at this time? Who did he have connections with? It was all the low life. It was all the other tax collectors, all the other guys that were in the same predicament he was, and yet he was so overjoyed at the life he found in Jesus that he wants to invite them all so that they can meet Jesus themselves. It says there were others that were there. Of the other gospels at this point call them sinners, which is exactly what the Pharisees call them later in verse 30. These sinners, we don't know exactly who they were. We don't know who included the others, but we can surmise that they were the other people that were rejected in Jewish society, criminals, prostitutes, Gentiles, and others with dishonorable professions. But the point is that, Jesus, that Matthew, Levi here, invited his uh, circle of acquaintances to a feast so that they could meet Jesus and Jesus could meet them. He wanted to create an opportunity for his friends to meet Jesus. And so you can picture the scene. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of joy flowing out of this house that Matthew has. He no doubt had, uh, was a rich man. He had collected uh, taxes for a number of years, had gained wealth, and therefore could host uh, in a large house as well as prepare a lavish feast. And this is a great joyous party that is taking place among the low life of society, the grubby, the unwanted, the untouchables. And they were there because their friend had just made a radical decision to leave everything and follow this rabbi of Nazareth. You know, you have to realize these people have probably never interacted with a religious teacher before. They've always seen at a distance the rabbis and, and those who, who taught the law and they could simply look at them traveling around but never really even had a conversation with one. And then here they are reclining, dining at table with one. And it's this scene that catches the notice of the Pharisees and the scribes. They would not have been invited to the party nor would they have gotten such close to, so close to a defiled place even if they were invited but it seems that they somehow are able to corner some of Jesus' disciples to ask them a question. Some surmise that this question came to them a day later after the party was over or, or later that night or some other time than at the party. Um, it's possible. It's also possible that they uh, uh, kind of cornered them, that some of the disciples had stepped outside or whatnot and were able to ask them this question. We don't know. But it says Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Notice that they grumbled. They, they kind of went and probably had kind of a low voice and a low tone and a, tone and a, and a kind of a despicable tone in their voice as they, as they grumbled and were, and were so uh, distraught at what they saw. They, their gag reflex was already kind of poised, ready to go. They couldn't even believe that this was taking place. And so they grumbled to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This Greek word for grumbling is the same one used in the Old Testament to describe 
Israel's grumbling before the Lord in the wilderness. These religious leaders were agitated. They were riled up. They were so displeased that they had to ask, how in the world do you, who claim to be a religious teacher, you claim to be uh, uh, teachers of the law and represent God, and yet look at you, you're, you're, you're reclining at table with this, these despicable people. Now, to understand this question, we also need to know how the ancient Near East viewed table fellowship. Because today we might, you know, eat at a, at a table with, you know, all sorts of people and we don't think too much of it. But in uh, ancient times and even in the East today, uh, eating at table and inviting someone to your table speaks uh, a whole lot more than it often does in our own society. As one scholar put it this way, he said, in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. And in Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. There was a religious, spiritual uh, bonding that took place as they shared a meal together. And as we can tell from this that the Pharisees did not extend this kind of fellowship to the low life of society. There are certain categories that they would not associate with. In fact, the Pharisees defined themselves by what they were against. The word Pharisee itself means a separated person, which means that they were separated from certain people. They were separated from those who were dirty, those who were sinners. So in their very identity, they found, they found their very identity by staying removed from those who were permanently defiled. Author and pastor Philip Graham Ryken further explains, he says, to eat with such people was considered unclean. It was to share in their sin, becoming spiritually impure. Thus it was something a teacher and his disciples never did. It was beneath their dignity. And one of the ways they showed their devotion to God was by not having any social contact with people who were not respectable. So they lived out their devotion to God by staying away from these folks. And here Jesus is reclining at table with them. And so you can see why they were so shocked by seeing Jesus and his disciples at table with them. By sharing a meal with them, Jesus was indicating his acceptance of these people. He takes them as they are. He doesn't leave them where they are, but he accepts them and takes them as they are. And Jesus was not about to be defiled by simply having a meal with these people. In fact, his goal was, was to purify the unclean. And friends, Jesus, we see here that Jesus not only moves towards sinners and looks to, to, uh, to win them, but he, he associates with them. He spends time with sinners. Jesus doesn't want to spend time with sinners in order to learn their ways. He spends time with them for the purpose of evangelism so that they might know the truth, know the gospel. You see, he's not in danger of defilement or distraction from the mission. He's completely focused. And this is going to uh, continue throughout his ministry. In fact, flip with me to Luke chapter 15. Later on in this book, Luke chapter 15. Verse 
this theme of Jesus associating with sinners continues to be a thorn in the Pharisee's side and continues to be a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The accusation doesn't go away. It's still there later on in his ministry. Jesus continues to associate with these folks to win them to himself. And isn't it comforting when we see that Jesus spends time with people like tax collectors and sinners to know that he does not cast them out? And we can know that he doesn't just help us, give us a helping hand and then leave us to ourselves, but he gives us a helping hand and pulls us into his own table of fellowship. Pulls us in to close fellowship with us. That we are not just given through the outskirts of Jesus' circle, but we are brought in close. He spends time with those who are unlovely and unholy. And therefore, it's good news for us. But I think there's another lesson here for us to contemplate this morning. That isn't it possible for a little of the spirit of the Pharisee to find a place in us where we sometimes only associate with those that we deem clean or having things all together that we would really want to spend time with at our dinner table and that we avoid those who may have their lives a little more uh, messed up than ours. We gravitate towards those who are clean and those who are moral you know that one family down the street, we, we see them and wave to them, but that's about all that we'll, we'll do. Believer, we can learn from Jesus here. God has placed sinners all around us, whether they look like moral people or not. All are lost in need of redemption through Jesus. There are sinners around you on your street, around you at the office, or your virtual office, I guess, these days. But I just ask you, do you move towards people who don't know Jesus? No matter what condition of life, no matter what choices they've made, no matter what, uh, what kind of sin you might see in their life, and have you ever shared table fellowship with them? Now, I know we, we're in COVID season and inviting people in and all of that kind of changes expectations and what's proper and etiquette and all of that. But we need to think about whether we move towards people, invite them in to our space. Invite them in where we can share with them that for the purpose, the very same purpose that Matthew invited them in, and that is that we might win them to Jesus, introduce them to the Savior. Church, we must be just like our Lord and Savior, and we need to associate with sinners. If we do not, how are we to tell the good news? How are we to introduce sinners to Jesus? How are they to know that there's a Savior who died for them if they would but repent and turn from their sins? And so just like Matthew, we need to bring into our homes these folks and introduce them to our Lord. Well, the last revelation of Christ's heart that we see in this passage, we've seen that Jesus moves towards sinners. He associates with sinners. Let's look finally that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And we see this 
in verses 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, verse 30 directed the question at the disciples, but Jesus, either through a messenger or overhearing, heard the question and takes the lead in answering the objection. The Pharisees may have been trying to attack Jesus' disciples and, and, and seek to place a guilt trip on the disciples separate from Jesus, seek, seek to siphon off some of Jesus' disciples by, by prompting this question and driving deep into the rabbinic Judaism that they knew. But it doesn't work. Jesus stands up to protect his own. He answers for himself. And he, he begins with a medical analogy, a medical truth, that those who are sick don't need a doctor. But it's only those who are truly sick need a physician. And Jesus uses that reality to then talk about the spiritual truth about his mission. He says, Jesus says, I didn't come to those who had it all together. I didn't come to this earth to pursue those who spiritually thought they already had everything put together in their life. He didn't come to the spiritually healthy, but to the spiritually sick. He came to save people who really needed him. The messed up, the broken down, the law-breaking sinners. When Jesus says he came not to call the righteous, he was referencing the Pharisees, right? I didn't come to call you righteous people. Now, is Jesus really saying that the Pharisees, was he really calling them righteous and saying they were righteous before God? No, he's stepping into their worldview. He's speaking sarcastically as if, as if their assumption about themselves was correct. Listen, if you call yourself righteous, I didn't come to save you because you don't think you even need to be saved. You don't think you even need any healing. You don't think you need a doctor. But they thought they were righteous. But the reality is that all people before a holy God are sinners. The Bible makes this clear. Romans chapter 3, verses, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. Okay, couldn't be more clear. None is righteous, no, not one. No one can stand before God on judgment day in their own righteousness thinking that they have what it takes, enough goodness, enough good deeds in order to pass the test. We all fall drastically short. And so Jesus' point is that he came to save those who knew they needed to be saved, those who knew they were sinners, those who admitted and confessed, yes, I am a sinner. And Jesus says, I came to save you. And in this, this, this contrast between the tax collectors who knew they were sinners and the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, we see that which blinds billions of people from salvation, and that is self-righteousness self-righteousness. Sin causes humanity to trust in itself. We naturally think that we're okay. We like to notice the good things that we do and we take pride in them. We, we downplay the bad things and we compare ourselves to the people around us. We find some outrageous example of people around us or people in society or a family member that's gone crazy and we just say, well, at least I'm better than them. And so like the Pharisees, we focus on the externals. We look at what we're doing while ignoring the heart. You see, the righteous who don't need saving by Jesus are those who think 
that being a good person is enough, or at least trying to be a good person is enough. The righteous are those who may have some religion. They may pray on occasion. They may attend church on a regular basis. They may even say that they believe in God or believe in some senses of the Bible. But they don't see themselves as a sinner in need of healing. Pastor John MacArthur says frequently that there's only two kinds of religions in the world. Christianity, which is salvation by grace, and everything else, which is salvation by works. And people fall into one of two categories, even those who claim to be a-religious or atheist. They're either in, uh, the atheists and all others are in this category of religion by works, trying to earn their salvation, trying to be a good person of themselves. And the only contrast to that is Christianity, which doesn't tell, give people a ladder or stairs to climb in order to be a good person. It says that we need to confess that we're not a good person and come in faith to Jesus who counts us righteous, who justifies us. You see, self-righteousness is damning. We feel good, we think we're a good person, we've done enough, but like the Pharisees, it sends us to hell. You see, the Pharisees thought that they were in a morally superior position. They thought they were doing what God wanted, but as one author put it, despite their pretensions, they were in a worse case than the sinners whom they scorned. They, were too, they too were sick, but they didn't know it. And herein lay the desperateness of their condition, the Pharisees' condition. The insidious disease was doing its fatal work unperceived and unarrested. Friends, that is the danger of self-righteousness. It's their thinking that we're okay when there's spiritual cancer going through our bodies and our souls. Jesus said in Matthew 21, verses 31 to 32, he said this to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You see the dividing line between the two groups, the tax collectors and prostitutes and the Pharisees? It was faith. Faith. It didn't, had nothing to do with their past. It had nothing to do with what they had done. It just, were they going to come to Jesus and believe Jesus? And the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And the self-righteous Pharisees would not do that. Even when they saw others believing, they would not humble themselves and, and associate themselves with them in Jesus' camp. And therefore, they remained hardened in unbelief. But folks, the good news that Jesus presents to us here in verse 32 is that Jesus did come to call sinners to repentance. That means that Jesus came to save sinners. He's provided a way for us to be saved from our sin, for us to find new life. And it's through the gateway of repentance. We talked about repentance when we preached through uh, Luke chapter 3, and I invite you to look back at those sermons. We walked through the different uh, uh, ingredients to repentance. But repentance, generally speaking, is this act of turning. It's doing a 180. It's not just reforming yourself and adding on a few moral things to your life. Repentance is saying, I was walking this way and living this way, falling after the ways of the world and after my own heart. 
and I am turning now this way, 180 degrees, and I'm following after Jesus and what he wants, and he is Lord. And I bow before him, and I humble myself before him, and know that he offers the only way of escape, the only way of salvation through sin. It's the 180 turn. So that we now despise our sin. We hate it. We're ashamed of it. And we grieve over it. And we confess it and say, yes, I did that. But Jesus was crucified for that. And his blood washes all that away. So that now I'm clean and my conscience is clean before the Lord. This is what is offered through Jesus the Savior. We can turn to Christ. He calls sinners to come humbly before him. Those who know they need to be saved. We confess our sins, humbly admitting that our way of life displeases him, that we are guilty before him, and that all of our sin must be brought into the light so that we raise our hands with the tax collectors and sinners and say, yes, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, you came to call me because I'm in that camp too. The good news is that Jesus is the great physician, is he not? He heals those of us with deep stains, deep patterns of sinful lives. He came to save sinners like us. And we can find forgiveness through Jesus. So I ask you, where do you stand this morning? Believer, will you, like Levi, rejoice in the forgiveness you received from Jesus? Will you praise Jesus for moving towards you a sinner? Because the fact that you ever turned from your sin to Christ was an act of amazing grace. But I suspect that there are some who are listening this morning who think that you are spiritually okay. You think that you don't need to repent of anything. And I assure you that those who think they are righteous are actually just as lost as those who do really bad things. That's how God views us. You too are a sinner and need to repent and turn to Jesus. Repent of your pride, which keeps you in delusions of your goodness. Confess your sin before a holy God and call out to Jesus to save you. You can do that right where you're sitting right now in the quietness of your heart. Call out, Jesus, save me from my sin. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I have sinned against you. And Jesus offers forgiveness to you. This passage reminds us that our sin, rather than exclude us from salvation, actually qualifies us to receive salvation. Jesus saves sinners. And he does this because he died upon the cross, bearing the sin for you and for me. And so, in this text, we see Christ's heart for sinners is one of compassion. He moves towards sinners, he associates with sinners, and ultimately he saves sinners. Friends, this is the good news. In fact, there is no greater news in the world. Amen? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this amazing news. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to save us from our sin. And we ask, O oh God, that you would please call the sinners who are here in our midst, those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, to do so today, to not hold on to their pride and their self-righteousness any longer, but may they admit and confess what, what your word says, that they are indeed sinners, and may they find the hope and the life and the joy that comes from such an admission and from such a turning to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as, before we end our service today, I have an announcement on behalf of the elders uh, to make, 
And that is that we want to let you know about a change that we will be implementing uh, in the, this, this next month. And that is that we will begin having members' meetings on a quarterly basis. Now, you know, for those of you who have been with us for some time, we've always had an annual business meeting once a year at the end of August, but we've never had regular meetings for our membership specifically. Now, members' meetings uh, are not a new idea with us. We didn't just suddenly sit around and think about this. This is actually fairly common with those churches that practice membership. Uh, it's common in Baptist, Presbyterian, and other circles to have these sort of meetings where the members get together, encourage one another, and care for one another. And so this, uh, with this new meeting format, we are seeking, by God's grace, to accomplish a few things. And so I just want you to understand the rationale for why we want to implement these regular members' meetings. And the first is what I'm calling celebration and dependence. This is Jesus' church, and we want to focus on him. And so there can be maybe some testimonies of how God has been working in our midst recently. Uh, there's definitely going to be times of prayer where we together as a membership come together and lift up our needs to God, lifting up people in our body that need prayer. And we can just pray for one another and pray uh, for God to be working in our midst. But we also want to uh, reaffirm our commitment with one another. It's kind of a, a time for the family meeting to get together to see one another. And, uh, and so this meeting is for members only. All of our other gatherings are public and open to all, but this will be the one meeting that is uh, not public. And as members, we have stated when we came into membership that we are caring for one another, that we are looking to, to care for the others uh, in our midst. And so this uh, time of gathering will enable us to reaffirm that commitment to one another. We believe here that membership is important, and we believe these meetings will help us to heighten that importance for all of us. But one of the other key things we want to accomplish at these meetings is, is member care, taking care of one another. And so our meetings will involve things such as uh, welcoming new members, those who are joining the family uh, in our, our midst. Uh, we'll also be announcing departures, those who uh, will be moving away, just uh, notifying those who are coming in and those who are going out. Uh, once, uh, we will also be updating the body on, on prayer requests and maybe talking through specific needs, something that's going on in someone's life, and be able to talk about specific needs and how we can serve them and uh, ways you can be praying specifically. At this point, we don't have any way to talk through those things. We have a prayer list that goes out once a week, but this will be a, a way for us to talk through some of these maybe even weightier matters. And that leads me to recognize that, that this will be where we will also be uh, talking through church discipline cases. If you've been with us for some time, you know that in the past, as we've sought to obey the Lord's command to, to practice church discipline, in which there are four steps laid out in Matthew 18, in which we are commanded to tell it to the church at some point to help win a brother or sister back to the Lord. We've typically, uh, we've, we've obeyed that by sending out a letter to the membership. And uh, the, the subtle uh, joke is that everyone fears a letter from Foothill Bible Church that shows up in their, in their mailbox because they're afraid it's going to be a bad or disappointing letter. And we recognize that uh, 
And so we'd like to pivot, and rather than using the letter as, as the way to, to announce those things to the membership, we'd like to talk through those things in a, in a family meeting where we can talk face-to-face and we can field questions and, and we can be able to think through those things uh, in, in an appropriate way, um, in a way to help us all learn and grow uh, and be prompted towards holiness in the midst of such a serious and, and heartbreaking circumstances as often church discipline cases are. And so uh, we want to use these meetings to deliver that news and to talk and pray together in the midst of that as we grieve uh, the sin of a, pers- of a member of our body. And, and fourthly, just uh, use the meetings for leadership purposes. Uh, in the past few years, we've done some things called Shepherding Sundays, and those, what we've sought to accomplish through the Shepherding Sundays, we will funnel into these uh, membership meetings and uh, do those things during this membership time in which we as elders are looked to uh, talk about the direction of the church. Where are we looking to go? Where are we praying that God is ahead? And uh, we also could uh, provide a financial update, maybe uh, let you know uh, certain uh, things that are going on in that arena. We could talk through difficult issues, maybe issues that are going on in our culture today, and we're trying to think through how do we process those. And uh, that can be a place that maybe we, we go through, uh, talk through those at, at that meeting as well, as well as a Q&A. Uh, it's it's going to be a time for some back and forth, um, hopefully kind of that, that family meeting style where we're all kind of, we're all talking through these issues and, and be able to learn together. And so let you, letting you know that our first meeting will be um, the evening of Sunday, November 29th. We know that that is, no, that is a Thanksgiving weekend, and we understand if you're unable to make it, we're just trying to get this thing off the ground and have one, and then we'll start getting them throughout the year. Um, and so know this is an ongoing meeting, so if you missed the first one, uh, catch the next one. And I just would like to finish by saying, if some of you have been with us for some time and uh, you are not yet a member, uh, and you could, but you consider Foothill your church home, I'd encourage you to use this opportunity now to take the plunge into a church membership. This is a great opportunity to join and become a fully functioning member of Christ's body here. We believe that membership is God's will for all believers in Christ. And so uh, next Sunday at 9 a.m., I'm going to be starting a membership class. Uh, We just finished one a couple weeks ago. We're going to start another one next week. And so I invite you to come at nine. It's only three weeks long. And uh, even if maybe some of you have come from a church that didn't have membership and you're not familiar with it and you're not sure what is membership really about, I invite you to come and join the class as well. It's geared towards both people, those who are ready to join and those who are checking it out. And we'd like to uh, make the case for why membership is important. And, uh, and so you can learn more about uh, what membership is. I think it will provide a great inter- introduction to you. So you can sign up for that class by calling the church office, emailing, or going to the Connect Corner and just let them know. And so as a result of implementing these meetings, we simply want to say that we want to care for you. We want you guys to be able to care for one another, the membership better, and, uh, and we pray that's the case. Uh, if you have any questions about this, about reasons behind this, feel free. The, the elders will be lingering around willing to answer any questions you have as we seek to uh, uh, move uh, towards this, uh, this time. So let me close this now in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We ask you'd help us to go in peace, thinking upon uh, all that you have taught us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.